All right. So, welcome everyone back to week three of Let's Talk About Sex. Um, I wanted to start off tonight. Last week we went through and we did an overview of, or an introduction to, and kind of a walk through, not walk through, but a stroll through the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, and how we talked about its purpose and everything, and um, and so I want to, we're going to, a few concluding thoughts on that. We're going to be on page 24 in your workbook, and, but um, one of uh, my friends in this class, she can't be here tonight because she's working, but she sent me this this week back in college, and in, uh, in, I think it was a Bible college, somebody had made a, they tried to take the Song of Solomon and draw it if it were literal, if all of the descriptions were literal. So if you look close, she's got like, her hair is a flock of goats, uh, her nose is the Tower of David, her teeth are actually individual sheep, and, uh, and the two fawns down there at the bottom, and a heap of wheat, and all of it. It's, it's, it's funny, like, it's a good reminder of how grotesque it can be when you misinterpret or you take literally what Scripture was not intended to be literal. When you don't read the Bible literarily and you demand on reading it literally, you end up doing this. You could do this same thing with the book of Revelation, and, you would, and, it, and it would prove the exact same point. Is when, you, when you take the symbol, the description of Jesus when he comes on the scene, sword coming out of his mouth, and he's, you know, his hair is white as wool, and all this stuff. If you try to press it literally, you end up vastly distorting the actual message that the inspired authors are trying to communicate. So this is a fun picture, and, and I told her, I was like, I'm definitely showing that Tuesday night because they need to see it. If you want the link to it, you can, um, you can let me know at the break. But we talked about, we ended last week by talking about, <clears throat> top of page 24, that the Bible, it doesn't reject the idea of sexual fantasy. Through the Song of Songs, we see that it actually seeks to redeem it. And that's really important because God wants to, we saw it's not this case of dualism where earthly stuff is bad and spiritual immaterial stuff is good, and so the more aligned we are with the earthly, the more uh, polluted we are, and the more ascetic and, and uh, aloof we become in our spirituality, the more pure and godly we are. That's nonsense. That's not uh, anywhere taught in the Hebrew Bible. Rather, the Hebrew Bible celebrates God's good creation, his physical creation, in which people are not, um, that, that people are, aren't complete or whole unless they are grounded in a physical creation. And this has, uh, this, this will even feed into the New Testament where uh, Paul talks about, you know, even, even if we're, we're, when we die and our, our, our soul is unclothed or it's, 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 it's naked and it longs to be clothed, not with corrupted bodies like we have, which is kind of all we know, but with the incorruptible, with, with, with spiritual bodies. And that doesn't mean immaterial in 1 Corinthians 15. It means um, like trans-material, super-material, more material, uh, material not corrupted by sin and decay and death. And so the Song of Song we saw last week is kind of a testament, right smack in the middle of your Bible, a testament to how much God values the physical creation and the physicality of the male-female 
relationship and how that male-female relationship, in a way different than any other relationship, that reflects the fullness of what it means to be in the image of God. Now, does it mean if you don't have a sexual relationship, male-female, that you are less an image-bearer? No, not at all, because Jesus never experienced the sexual relationship, and he was the epitome of what it means to be human. So don't hear that. Don't hear that it means that you, that you have to experience marriage and sexual intimacy and all that in order to be what God created. That's not the point, and the Scripture doesn't make that case. Rather, what it says is, as a whole, collectively, the male-female relationship is, is an intrinsic part of what it means to be human created in the image of God. So the Bible doesn't seek to reject all of what it means to be human, including our, our, our desires, our hormonal urges, our fantasy, the fact that we find things either emotionally or even visually enticing. Those are, those are not bad things in and of themselves. Everything, everything sinful is taking an original good, an original ideal, and altering, twisting, or distorting it in some way. The creation account, you think back to the fall and the temptation, you know, the eating of the fruit was not a bad thing. Desiring to eat the fruit was not a bad thing. God filled the garden with trees with fruit. It was that particular fruit that God had specifically said not to eat from. That was the bad. So the, the, the subtle distortion. Well, that's how it is with sexuality and with things like fantasy. The song presents us with what godly sexual fantasy looks like. And we saw last week how it's filled with erotic imagery, explicit imagery, imagery describing every single part of the body, including the naughty bits that we don't talk about in polite company. But the song delights in those. It celebrates the, 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 the creation of male and female as sexual creatures. Again, this quote by Richard Foster, it's so good, it's worth sharing. Uh, he says, the problem with the topless bars and the pornographic literature of our day is not that they emphasize sexuality too much, but that they do not emphasize it enough. They totally eliminate the relationship and restrain sexuality to the narrow confines of the genital. They have made sex trivial. That is a revolutionary way of Christians thinking about sex in a sex-saturated society. In, in other words, when we are confronted with, you know, whether it's commercials, whether it's movies, whether it's the pornography industry, the sexualization of music or, or culture, any of those things, when we're confronted with it, the problem with it from a, Christian, from a biblical perspective, the problem is not that it's too sexy. The problem is not that it's too sexy. It's not even remotely sexy enough because it limits sex it limits the sexual idea of the fantasy uh, and, and the sexual longing and the desire. It limits it to a commodity, and it limits it to just either the visual or, or the, the tangible aspect rather than the fullness of what sexuality is, which is the relational aspect. There's a reason that in the Hebrew Bible, the verb for to have sex with, one of the verbs for that is to know. In fact, that's how it's first used. The first time sex is ever described, it's as the man knowing his wife. That word, to know, is the biblical euphemism, one of the biblical... There's a word for to have sex with. I mean, there's, a, there's just a normal kind of crass, not really crass, but just a, uh, uh, just a normal word for to go 
do the sex deed with someone. That, there's a word for that in Hebrew, but it's not the main word that's used. It's not the primary word that's used. The primary word that's used in the main emphasis in the Hebrew Bible is to know and to be known. And that's what sex is, and it's in its intended form, the way God intended it. Remember, we looked at Jesus, how Jesus pointed even back before Torah, back to the, the original intention of creation. God's intention was that the sex act would be where the man and the woman could be, like in the garden, naked and unashamed, where they were fully exposed to one another. Not just physically speaking, but also emotionally and spiritually. They were naked and unashamed, that fullness of relationship. That's what the sex act is. So somebody, you know, like if you go to like the the red light district in Amsterdam or, or, you know, go to Bangkok where there's all of the brothels and the prostitution and all of this stuff, it's, that's not sexy according to a biblical understanding of sex. That's taking one aspect of what sex was intended to be, one aspect of it, which is the physical pleasurable act, removing it completely from the fullness of what sex was supposed to be, and then putting that forward as sex. It's a cheap comparison to the real thing. That's the mindset that I would say the Christian sees when we read Scripture. That's the mindset. Now, just, just imagine that. If, we, if Christians approach the world, a, a hypersexualized culture, in that manner, rather than a stereotypical approach where it's, uh, you know, that, that's too sexy, that's too risky, that's too... It's just a subtle shift, but it makes all the difference in the world for how we reach out to and how we are salt and light in a hypersexualized culture. Is if we are able to share with people, yeah, yeah, that's not, I mean, yeah, you could call that sexy, and on one level it's, it's alluring, but it's certainly not sexy. Sexiness goes much deeper than just the, you know, whatever, Victoria's Secret fashion show or Sports Illustrated or, or whatever you want to, or, you know, romance novels with Fabio on the cover or any of that stuff that people get all into. That quote, though, we're in a culture that has made sex trivial. So trivial that it's just taken for granted. There, the, the, when I was growing up, you could, I could count on one hand the number of sitcoms, like primetime level sitcoms, where unmarried couples were, were shown in the bed together. I mean, other than soap operas, they've always been trashy. But I'm talking about evening TGIF-type TV shows. You had like Night Court, you had Dan Fielding, and he was just a dog anyway. I mean, that was kind of the thing about the show. And then Three's Company sort of hinted about it and, and other shows. But, but there wasn't. Now, though, every single show on afternoon syndication, on primetime, it, it all, there, there's an established shot of the couple in bed together. Whether, you know, it's How I Met Your uh, Mother or Father or one of the two, uh, Big Bang Theory or, or any of these type popular sitcoms, there's, we've seen that as a culture. It's become, sex has become something that's just like, it's not just trivial, it's just not even eyebrow raising anymore. It's assumed that if you're an adult, you're sexually active. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with you and you have some weird disease or some personality quirk or you're just a loser or this and that. And, and that's, that's what Foster's talking about in that quote of the making sex trivial as we're surrounded by it. However, as we'll see a little bit later tonight, we don't have it remotely as bad as the Corinthians or the Israelites in the midst of Canaan had it. I mean, it's not even 
close to the level of hypersexuality that they, yeah, we have different ways of being, expressing uh, sexuality today. We have a different technology that presents the ideas, but n not even in terms of uh, society-wide acceptance. We're not there yet. Um, but the reason, according to the song, the reason that sexuality, the sexual intimacy is so overpowering is because it's supposed to be. It's designed to be overpowering. It's designed to be addictive. It's designed to be something that is a key part of the marital relationship, the man-woman relationship that God desires, that, that, that committed, lifelong bond that brings into being, that very possibly brings into being new life or at least a new family from what was two people separate, becoming one flesh. It's supposed to be. And we see this at the end of the song when it says, uh, set me like a cylinder seal over your heart, like a signet on your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion is as unrelenting as the grave. Its flames burst forth. Its flames burst forth. It is a blazing flame. So it is biblical when speaking about sex to say, man, that's really hot. <laughs> like that's a biblical term. That is a, that's okay. That's not a, a secularization of it. There are things that's really hot. And part of what sex is supposed to be is this blazing flame, blazing fire. But fire is only good when it's contained, when it's in a fireplace, when it's in an oven, when it's in a forge, when it's on a torch, a candle. It, it's good when it's being used for what it's supposed to be. When it's let loose, it's disaster. And that's the image that Scripture does hold up of sexuality, is that it's good, but it's good because it's powerful and strong and overpowering. It's supposed to be that way, which is why God puts safeguards on it, which is why the Christian ethic has always taught that there are parameters to it, not ever because Christians care what goes on in people's bedrooms. I get that a lot when I have these discussions online. People say, oh, you're just so concerned about what people do in their bedrooms. Why are Christians so hung up on that? Why do you care who's sleeping with who? And it, it, not even remotely the, the, the way that Christians biblically approach this issue. Rather, it's, hey, this thing that, that, that's being kind of bandied about in our culture, this thing called sex, it's really powerful. Really powerful. And there's, there's a very good and amazing and wonderful way in which it should be exercised. And there are ways in which doing it is destructive and harmful to people, their relationship with one another, and also their relationship with God. It's intimately linked with your holiness and sanctification in the New Testament. There's a reason for it. It's uh, the imagery, to finish it up. Set me like a cylinder seal over your heart. We don't really use cylinder seals very much, but they were very common in ancient Near East. Here's two cylinder seals from around the time or, or around the location. And a cylinder seal was basically a negatively carved seal, uh, cylinder that had an injury carved on it. And you would take it, you'd put clay, wet clay, either flat or you'd put it on the, the seam of a document or a seal that you wanted closed and, and unbroken. And then while the clay was still wet, you'd take the seal and you'd roll it on the clay and the image that resulted was unique. That was your seal. Everybody had their seal. Whether you were a king, a ruler, a general, whoever, it was kind of like your driver's license or your signature. So if you wanted to seal something up, 
and, and know that only an authorized person could have access to it. If the seal is broken, that means that someone has been tampering with it. That means it's been compromised. You would do a cylinder seal. Well, the song says, that the, the man and the woman talking to one another, and she says, you know, set me like a cylinder seal over your heart. That sexuality is supposed to, the sexual intimacy is supposed to leave an imprint. And that's why the, the healing that has to happen when people who have had sexual damage throughout their lives, whether it's of their own choosing and their own doing, or whether it's been done to them by people who have attacked and abused them, the reason that so much counseling and so much healing and so much community and so much support is needed is because their heart has been rolled over with seal after seal after seal. And it wasn't made to be that way. So it's very powerful. It's very, um, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. And that's how, more than anything, the song holds that up, that it's a good thing. So the multiple warning refrains throughout the song um, are there saying, you know, don't awaken sexual love, this sexual relationship. Don't awaken it before it's ready. Don't, don't jumpstart it because once it starts, man, it's really hard to stop like anything else that's addictive. So the psalmist and the proverb writer will both caution against entering into uh, sexual activity, especially, in particularly, outside of the marriage setting, but even within, rushing into it because of how powerful it is. And so that's why the woman says it uh, three times throughout the song. So let's then talk about Lust, longing, desire, and temptation, page 25. Now, the question, because we want to address, remember, this course is not what you need to think about sex and sexual issues. This course is helping you figure out how you should form your sexual ethic, how you should think about these things. That's far more important than what you should think about them. So the song has been dealing with this, and, and the song was written, and we saw last week, it was, it was aimed at teaching married couples how to have, or showing them rather than teaching, illustrating for them uh, how to have a sexually fulfilling relationship. But the question is, okay, so what about unmarried couples? You know, in our culture, we do a thing called dating. We have relationships. We have like, like boyfriend-girlfriend or, or, or casual dating relationships where we're kind of figuring it out. Not that, that, didn't, that didn't happen often in the ancient Near East. It doesn't happen today around the world. When, when I go to India every year, the majority of the people who, who Talbot and I and other people that have been there, Chris, and others who go to India, our brothers and sisters there, their marriages were arranged. And they weren't against their will. They, they're happy that their marriages are arranged because they look at the West and they go, you guys, your, your divorce rate skyrockets. We don't want to do it the way you do it. Your way doesn't work. Uh, well, our host said one time that the thought behind it is, your parents know you better than anyone on earth. Why wouldn't you let them pick your spouse? Just a total different way of thinking. Not right or wrong. I'm not saying the arranged marriage is the way to go or that it's not the way to go. It's just a different setting that we live in than that the rest of the world or a lot of the world lives in today and throughout history. So we have experience, we have situations that arise that maybe the author of the song didn't experience. Like people that are single, adult, adults that are single. The majority of adults in America are single adults. Did you know that? Like the majority of 18 and up are single or single again, either through widow or through divorce. 
and, and people in American culture are pushing off marriage longer and longer. And like my grandmother, my great-grandmother, I believe my great-grandmother on my mom's side, one of them was married when she was 14. I believe my grandmother married when she was 17. My mom had just turned 19. I'm 37. <laughs> I'm way behind <laughs> in terms of my family's uh, trajectory of marriage. But the point is that that's not just unique to my family. I mean, in general, adults in America are getting married much, much, much later. So the question is, all right, so in the meantime... Before I get ready to enter my garden and eat of its fruits, Solomon, or whoever wrote it, what do I do? What do I do with the fact that I am a, a person that we saw in the past two weeks created with sexual urges, sexual desires? Those aren't bad. They aren't evil. It's not proof that I'm somehow deficient or not holy. It's very real. It's very normal. It's very natural. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? And so when we're thinking about it, when it comes to, to sex and to sensuality in a relationship, the, the question that a lot of people want to ask, it's, a, it's the number one question if you speak with youth, with like high schoolers and college age, number one, by far, the question that comes up more than any other uh, when, when you start talking about dating is, well, how far is too far? At least in my experience, doing campus ministry and doing high school ministry, that's been the case. Okay, so what can me and my girlfriend do? What can we not do? You know, like... Okay, so if we're on the couch watching a movie, can she lay on my lap? Can I lean on her shoulder? Can I hug her waist? Can I do this? Okay, we can kiss or can't we kiss? What can I touch? What can I not touch? What we want, what people want, my, my old roommate who's now a family pastor in, in Georgia <laughs> in college, he's talking about, he says, what people want is just a little paper doll cutout with the little dotted lines around the area saying, don't touch. Don't touch here, don't touch here, don't touch here, and you're good to go. And that's what a lot of even parents and well-meaning uh, youth and, and, and Christian education people, does, that, that's what we inadvertently end up giving, particularly giving young people as they're entering into puberty, entering into the sexual awakening and all this stuff. But in reality, that's, that's just the thinking of it that way. You've already started uh, behind your 50-yard line. You've already started back a few steps because once you've started asking, what can I not, do? what can I, how far can I go without it being wrong? Once you've thought of, what you, once that's your question, then you're no longer thinking, how can I glorify God and how can I honor myself and my love interest? That's, that's the question that, that, that should drive, I would suggest should drive our sexual ethic, is how can I honor God, and how can I honor the person, and how can I honor myself in our behavior? And so for some couples, I had friends in, um, in college who they, they, they dated, they got married right after college, but all through their dating, they dated for years, they, they never kissed. Their first kiss was on their, at, the, at the altar. They wanted that. That's a decision they made. They're like, we want our first kiss to be when they say, I do, I now pronounce you man and wife, and it's a fairy tale, and it's beautiful, and, and they did it. And for them, that was a great thing. It's what they wanted. It's, what, it's how they thought that they could best honor the other person and themselves and their relationship with God. But, that, but for other people, that wasn't the case, because for other people, what a kiss communicated was different than what it did for them. For other people, a kiss communicated something much less on the, the 
uh, scale of emotional intimacy, vulnerability, all that kind of stuff, uh, it, it was significantly less. And so when you're forming, when we're forming our sexual ethic on these issues where Scripture doesn't give us, what Scripture gives us, it gives us a standard. It says sexual intimacy is for an eternal, per- permanent, lifelong commitment. That's the bar. If you want to engage in sexual intimacy, if you want to have sex, that is the act by which you pledge yourself to another person. And that's the arena in which it should happen. Short of that, there's not a clear-cut rule that Scripture gives, Old Testament or New Testament. What it does, though, is it gives us a lens through which to view the entire thing. It gives us an ethic a way to approach questions of sexuality, questions of intimacy. So, for instance, for a couple, they're not married, but moving towards marriage or just started dating, maybe looking towards marriage, but there's a strong attraction there, and they're, they're, you know, physical touches their love language and all of this kind of stuff. You know, that for them, the quote on the bottom of page 25, again, from Allender and Longman from their book on the song and how it relates to sexuality, um, the quote that they have is great. It's uh, the yellow part. Is it yellow in your book? Yeah, okay. So it says, perhaps the best principle, though it's not a law, and I want to make it clear, it's not a law, the best principle is that the level of intimacy should not exceed the level of commitment that a man and a woman have for each other. A couple that's engaged have entered a level of commitment that's far beyond that of a couple in their first month of dating, but still short of the full-blown commitment of marriage. Physical intimacy should not exceed the level of commitment the couple have for each other. Thus, in many ways, the answer to how far is too far is a matter not of law, but of wisdom. Guided by the principle that the deeper a couple's commitment to one another, the more physically intimate they will be. However, as in all matters of wisdom, it is a question not only of timing, but also of knowing oneself. And that's huge in terms of a sexual ethic. For some people, a kiss is not just a kiss. For some people, physical closeness is not just a physical comfort. And so in a relationship, that's part of of a, a relationship is having those uncomfortable talks with each other. Having those discussions of, okay, where, where are our, generally speaking, where are our boundaries in this? What am I comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? All under the umbrella of what is God comfortable with. And when we start to look at it that way, then it takes it out of this realm of, okay, Christians don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this. And it puts it in the realm of, how can I bless you, and how can you bless me, and how can we honor God? And it would be different for different people. There will be people for whom uh, a level of intimacy, their comfort level may go further than the other person in terms of commitment. So, for instance, if I, as, as a guy, if, if I'm dating a girl and, and I'm kind of into, like, just kind of figuring it out, like, okay, I'm attracted to the person and I want to see where this goes, um, but haven't reached that head over heels, you know, this is the one, I'm, I'm, I'm shopping for rings, any of that stuff. If, if I'm, in my mind, like, I don't know where this is headed. If she is, in her mind, like, this is, I want this to lie, I want this to go, I want this to be something we build on, then for me to continue or to, or to um, engage in a level of physical intimacy that's much 
beyond just casually dating, that would be wrong. That would be wrong. Or vice versa. If, if, if it's, she's not that into me and, you know, and I am and, and I want that and part of it is I want to be, you know, intimacy, physical intimacy and touch and all of that is the way we express love. It's the way we receive pleasure. It's, it's all of this stuff. And so I want to encourage that and build it and build it. And in the meantime, her level of interest in terms of long-term relationship is, is going down. Then, then the intimacy should not continue to go up. But that's what adults, particularly single adults, throughout Christians and non-Christians do, is in a desire to, to save the relationship. I want to create this intimacy. I want to create this bond. I'm going to give myself more. I'm going to become more intimate, more sexually intimate. More, we're going to go a little further. Maybe we still won't have sex. Maybe we won't go all the way. But, but we'll, we'll, I'll go further than I'm comfortable with because maybe that will get the person to be into me. Because that's what we're taught growing up is, is you know, if you want somebody to be into you, you got to, you know, you got to give them something. And that, that is, it's a disease. Um, it's definitely not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And it's not even a good principle. So, so that's something to think about as you're forming your sexual ethic. If you are a single adult or a single again adult or you have children who are starting to date or in college or young adults or whatever, these are the types of things that you should be thinking of and talking about with them and getting them to think about and to see and to understand. And, and I just I think that's a fantastic quote. It's a, it's a good rule of thumb in general is, is the closer, the more committed the relationship, then the, the greater level of physical intimacy can be fitting. And beyond that, we have to be careful uh, about imposing because we, we want to hold a balance. We want to hold a balance. So, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, we'll see how later in, in, in the book of Colossians in particular, the scripture will talk about if you want to entice your sin nature, just say don't do something. <laughs> You know, if you don't want a child to do something, what do you say? Don't do that. They go and do it. That's, that's, a, that's a human characteristic because when we set a boundary in place, a hard boundary, then immediately the sin nature that we war against, that if we're Christians, is trying to reclaim its rule of our life, immediately what it says is, oh, well, then that means you can go right up to there. So go for it. Everything up to that is a-okay. When in fact, everything leading up to that may not be okay. But that is sort of the point of no return. So we'll get into more of that in a minute. But let's talk about um, lust and adultery of the heart. We, we look at what Jesus says. And, and in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount and in other areas, you know, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, what's going on there? Well, First of all, some things that are helpful to know. The word lust simply means desire in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The word that's usually translated, there's two Greek words I've given you here on the screen, epithemeo uh, or epithemia, which is the noun, epithemeo is the verb, or uh, orexis. So orexis, uh, epithemia, or epithemeo, those are sort of the words in the New Testament and in the Greek version of the Old Testament that get translated in your English Bibles as lust. Well, those same words get translated as desire or crave in other contexts. It's the context that determines the difference between 
lust, sinful lust, and legitimate desire. It's not a matter of vocabulary. So whenever you see that, whenever you see lust, so when Jesus is saying anyone that looks after a woman uh, to lust after her or lusts after her, he's saying anyone who looks after a woman desiring, he's using that language. And there's, there's instances, I've, I've given you some so you can look them up uh, on your own when you're, when you're studying, thinking through all this, and hopefully you're doing that. Hopefully you're not just coming and saying, oh, that's great, and then going home, but you're actually studying and engaging, which is why I give you these quotes and citations and material in the workbook that we don't even get to cover in depth. I want, want this to be a jump start for your forming of your sexual ethic and your studying, whether it's in your small group, whether it's uh, on your own, or whether it's with a small group of friends. But the context determines whether the word means lust or desire. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3.1, this is not, um, yeah, this isn't in your uh, book, the, ver, the verse itself, uh, but you can write it down if you want to. In 1 Timothy 3.1, when Paul says, this saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. That's what you read in your Bible. That word is lust. Anyone who desire, anyone who aspires to the office of bishop lusts for a noble thing would be another way of saying it. It's, it's the same word. Um, Haddon Robinson, a professor of preaching at, at Gordon-Conwell, and, and he's, he's basically wrote the textbook on preaching for most people, uh, preachers in North America, in some way are influenced by him. In, in, his, uh, in, in a preaching commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about uh, this passage and what Jesus was talking about and what Jesus meant and, and how Jesus operated and how Jesus as a preacher and Jesus as a prophet makes it so that we have to interpret his words as preaching and prophetic speech rather than uh, just dispassionate giving of laws and rules. Like when Jesus uses figures of speech, he uses them to intentionally shock, to intentionally jolt his audience, to intentionally get people to go, wait a minute, what? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? What? And he doesn't give them an answer. He makes them think it over, and he says things like, anyone with ears to hear, let him hear. And some of them are like, I, 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 too much for me. Now you're just talking crazy, and they leave him, and he doesn't run after them. Jesus preached and taught in a way that invited pondering and reflection and asking the question, what did, what did he mean by that? Because on the surface, it sounds crazy. That was the way that Jesus operated. So in talking about this, Haddon says, when Jesus talked about this particular passage in, um, about looking and adultery with heart, when Jesus talked about looking at a woman lustfully, he was not simply talking about sexual desire. That was given to us by God and is portrayed in the Bible as a good gift. Admittedly, the gift is often labeled handle with care, but sexual desire comes from God. By the word lust, Jesus did not refer to sexual desire or the normal attraction between men and women. The word lust is the same word in Greek that is translated coveting. That's also one of the definitions of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. And in the Ten Commandments, what does it say? Specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And your neighbor's donkey, oxen, maidservant, manservant, house. It lists all these things, but it describes the marriage relationship as the first thing to not covet. So Jesus then uses that when he picks up on it and talks about it, and he links that idea of coveting, that type of desire, that type of lust, with the previous commandment against adultery. He's showing how it's linked through the 10th commandment. There's some cool stuff going on that Jesus is doing. But anyway, Robinson goes on to say, 
Uh, it is a desire that focuses on a woman with the view of possessing her or having an immoral relationship with her. It's a look with a purpose. I like that phrase, a look with a purpose. To put it another way, it is, I would if I could. Only convention, her husband, or the fear of getting caught stops it. The stress of lust is in its purpose. Anyone who purposes in the heart to commit adultery has already committed it in God's eyes. So when Jesus is saying, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and and it's, again, Jesus spoke into his context, he used gender language, but it it applied to both genders. When Jesus says, let any man who would follow me take up his cross and and deny himself and come be, he didn't mean just men. I mean, that's the way Hebrew Greek of that day works, is you could speak in, in gendered language, but it applied to both genders. So what Jesus paraphrased would be, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, or, or in reality, the word woman is, is the word for wife as well. And everywhere else in Matthew's gospel, it's translated as wife. That's like the one spot where it's translated as woman. Uh, but that's how you'd say wife in Hebrew is, this is my woman, I'm her man. That's the word for husband and wife. Regardless, what Jesus is saying that is he's not saying if you look at a woman and you find her attractive and, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a sexual urge or a longing or a thought that comes into your mind of a sexual nature, then you've already committed adultery with her. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you look at a woman to lust after her, to covet her. If I look at someone else's, I'm a guy, so if I look at someone else's wife and I look at her and go, that's a, that's a beautiful woman, or man, she, wow, she's a knockout. <laughs> There's nothing necessarily wrong with that done that a lot. We all do that a lot. That's normal. But if I look and I think, man, I wonder what it would be. I wonder what she's like in the bedroom. I wonder what she, if I start to go down that path, that's when looking or even appreciating has moved into lusting, coveting, and desiring. And that's when it's already happened. In other words, the the sin of, of, of lust is, is an entirely mental sin. It's entirely done in the mind. Now, you can act out on that in a number of sinful ways, and those are additions to it, but it begins with the purpose of the looking. The purpose. So, it's something that as a Christian, as we're forming our sexual ethic, as we're thinking about it, it, it we hear stories all the time of people that have affairs. And, and some of you, maybe in, in a room this size, at least someone in here has either experienced an affair or participated in one, statistically speaking. Affairs don't happen just out of nowhere. I walked around the corner, there was this amazing looking guy, and the next thing I know, we're in a hotel room having sex. It doesn't work that way. Especially it doesn't work that way like in a workplace or in a casual setting. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It starts with... Oh, that's a really good-looking person. Oh, she's so funny. She's so nice. She's so cute. And then that moves to, oh, let's go have lunch together. Well, so far, there's nothing necessarily wrong, although there could be, depending on the purpose. And then it becomes, oh, I'm having problems in my relationship. Let me talk to this person because they understand me. I can confide in them. They get me. Unlike my lousy husband at home, he doesn't get me. Or my wife, she doesn't appreciate me. Then it becomes this person, it's moved from appreciation to desire, and it's nurtured, 
and it gives birth eventually to full-blown sin, whether it's ever acted on or whether it's simply an emotional affair or whether it's an entirely, entire one-way thing where it's just fantasizing and being obsessed with the person and they don't even know it. They just think it's like you're just being nice or complimentary or whatever, but in your mind, there's more to it. See, that's the realm that lust works at. And that's the realm that we as Christians want to engage it at. Not just engage it in the, in the outer section. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to uh, ever be alone with a woman who's not my wife. Well, that's actually, that's a, that's a pretty good rule. There's no reason to not do that. There's no reason to assume immediately that somebody's legalistic if that's their rule. Um, it, it may very well be what they need. And more people could probably do better doing that. But that's not the heart of the issue. That's just a, that's just a means of dealing with the outward or, or the fullness of the sin. The inward has to be dealt with. First and foremost, it has to be dealt with by the Holy Spirit, cleansing and renewing and forgiving. And that's what salvation is for. That's what repentance, confession, and salvation is that point where all of that stuff that's inward literally gets removed and now it exists apart from you. It still wages war against you. It still tempts you. It still whispers in your ear. It still wants to get back control. But you belong to Jesus. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So now it's a battle against an external enemy. Not, oh, well, it's just something wrong with me. I'm just terrible. I'm a terrible person, blah, blah, blah. That may be true before you have an encounter with the Lord, before you're born again. In fact, that is true before you're born again. But once you're born again, then it's a different uh, reality altogether. And so how we deal with that, how we deal with lust, how we deal with, with uh, sexual fantasy and, and romance and attraction and all of that stuff is going to be a winding, messy, wide road that we need to be prepared to give leeway on to one another as long as we are acting within the bounds of God's desires, within what he's set as his uh, ideal. But the, 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 the passage where Jesus says, you know, if anyone's looked after someone less than her, they've already committed adultery. He's not saying if you look at someone and you have a sexual thought, that's just as bad as if you did it. He's not saying that. that that's a superficial, surfacey reading that doesn't actually wrestle with and grapple with the text itself in its original language, the terms that Jesus uses, the style of his preaching, all of that stuff. That's just a superficial. And it's also a way of negating sin because then it becomes, oh, well, if it's true that if I've looked at a woman lustfully, then it's just as bad as I've committed adultery, then what's the big deal about committing adultery? I already committed every day when I see the person, the, 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 the good-looking guy that runs with his shirt off down the road. I already commit it. Why not act on it? It's no worse. All sin is sin in God's eyes. All sin is equal in God's eyes. No. No. The Bible does not teach that. That is a Christian urban legend that should be put to bed. The source of all sin is equal because it all comes from the same place. But the manifestation of how it, it happens in your life, there are varying degrees of sin. Murdering someone and reusing a postage stamp are two very different levels of sin. <laughs> and anyone who would say, oh no, in God's eyes it's all the same, they don't know God very well. They haven't read their Bible very well. But that's a desire that we want to do. We want to democratize sin and democratize temptation and say, well, it's all just kind of the same. And, you know, it's I'm only human. Those of you that have been going to Good Shepherd, you catch that reference. Um, those of you that aren't, that's the current sermon series is only human. But it's not the case that, that sin manifests itself in different ways. 
And it, 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 it will deal with, there will be stuff that we have to deal with that will be different and messy and, and won't be a one-size-fits-all approach. But what Jesus was getting at was you can't inwardly want to do it, plan on doing it, or relish the thought of doing it and claim that you're sinless before God. That's what he was getting at. He was combating, Jesus was speaking against external obedience to the law without internal commitment to the Spirit. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, not just about sex, but about everything he says, that's what Jesus is doing, is he is taking, he is talking to first century Israel who have the law, the Torah, and, and down through the centuries it had become watered down to the point where it said basically, as long as you're keeping the letter of the law, God is pleased with us as a nation, and he will eventually free us from Rome's rule and, and everybody else's, and we'll be raised up, and we won't be in exile anymore, we won't be occupied anymore, we won't have people ruling over us, we'll finally be what God wants, as long as we as a nation all keep God's laws. So this is why the Pharisees were so interested, were so obsessed with people's sex lives. Not because they were killjoys, not because they were the moral police. They were the moral police, self-appointed, not through any official action. But their desire, the Pharisees' desire, was for the nation as a whole to turn back to God. They wanted their nation to get back to its biblical roots. They wanted their nation to repent and to be righteous so that God would bless their nation with prosperity and with freedom and with power and with all of the blessings that he promised in the covenant. Does that sound familiar to anyone who listens to modern politics? They were trying to take back the country for God. And if anyone actually had a claim to that, it was them. Because they're the only nation on the face of the earth that God ever entered into a theocratic relationship with. So they really could talk about a time when God established their country unlike any other nation since then, including our own. What they wanted to do was make sure everybody was being corporately holy so that God would bless their nation. That's why that they were so um, upset with the sinners, the prostitutes, the people who were flouting God's law, the people who were disobeying, the people who were living prodigal lives. That's why, because they were like, you guys are what's keeping God's curse on us. You guys are the reason that Rome is still ruling us. So get your life in order. And so they set up, the Pharisees in general, not all, but in general the Pharisees set up this system of rules designed to keep people from breaking the law. And it was called a hedge, building a hedge around the Torah. So if the Torah says, uh, you know, don't engage in whatever, don't touch a dead body, then the Pharisees would say, okay, not only can you not touch a corpse without becoming defiled, but you can't go near within a certain number of paces a graveyard. Or the, the law said, do not do your job, your occupation on the Sabbath. It should be a day of rest. So they said, not only should you not do your job on the Sabbath, but to even keep you from coming close to doing your job on the Sabbath and therefore breaking God's law, you're not even allowed to walk more than a certain number of paces lest that be considered working. And that's what Jesus got into trouble with because he did stuff on the Sabbath that was, they considered working, but the Scripture never considered it. So all of that to say, the Pharisees were trying to heal the wounds of their nation 
by putting band-aids and ointment and salve on the outer, on the exterior. As long as you're tithing to the temple, as long as you're giving a tenth of all of your mint, your spices, your dill, your perfumes, your this and all this stuff, that, as long as you're doing that, then it really doesn't matter how you treat people emotionally or relationally. As long as you are, have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, then that's what it takes for God to honor us and, and to bless us. And what Jesus comes in radically does is he shines the light of the Torah, the light of Scripture, onto them. And he says, no, the heart of God's law from the beginning was inner transformation. The whole idea of being circumcised of heart rather than just being externally circumcised, that's an Old Testament idea. The whole thing about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, those are two passages from the Old Testament. Jesus didn't make up any new law. He didn't, he didn't say the law is done, it's over with, and it's no good, and I've got something better. He pointed Israel back to being what God wanted Israel to be in the first place. And he did that in all areas of society, including sexual holiness. Look at that in just a minute in more detail. But, so when you're talking to couples, married couples, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, unmarried couples, okay, how far is too far, all that kind of stuff. There are things that it's good. What about people who aren't in a relationship? What about people who are single or single again? What about your kids who are just starting to discover their sexuality? What about people who experience sexual urges, sexual temptations that are different, that are, that are not even, even in their ideal, they're not what God desires in terms of male-female relationships. Same-sex attraction, multiple partner attraction, sexual addiction, fetishes, all of these kind of things. What about that? The industry, the, the pornography industry around the world uh, feeds off of that. It, it, it exists because of that. Pornography is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry because sexual fantasy and sexual urgings and sexual longing and, and even, even, even twisting of those sexual, even what should have been seen as good being twisted and being turned and used as power or a form of degradation or a form of control or all of this. I mean, don't, don't do it, but you just five minutes on the Internet and you can see the absolute worst of human nature when it comes to sexuality. If there's something you can do sexually that's awful, not only has someone done it, but they've probably made a website for it. That's how bad it is. Now, the good news is that's nothing new. <laughs> that's just, yeah, we'll see in a while. But for a lot of people, the question that they have, especially for, for younger people, is, all right, so what about, what about like sex without somebody? What about masturbation? Like nobody wants to say the word because it's so embarrassing. It's such a weird word. But what about it? What, what does the Bible say about it? What does it not say about it? How, as a Christian, should we approach this issue? This is the dreaded conversation for most parents, that you don't want to have this talk with your kid. If you do, you use euphemisms, you use figures of speech, you use all this stuff, but it's a real issue. It's a very foundational sexual issue, and, and it's the way most people in America experience their sexual outlet through sex acts not involving other people. It's, it's a, it's a no, here, here's some, these are pre-internet statistics. So before the ease of the internet, before you could literally have the equivalent of an adult video store on your phone, this was the case. So if anything, 
it's going to be even more today. Uh, one survey of evangelicals. These are evangelicals, Bible-believing, conservative to fundamentalist, somewhere in that spectrum. Uh, not, not liberal, like, well, the Bible's just a good book, but I live my life according to whatever. Not churchgoers. Evangelical Christians. 31% of lay people and 30% of pastors considered masturbation to be wrong. 32% of lay people, 35% of pastors said it wasn't wrong. And the remainder said it depends on the circumstances. So um, just among evangelical Christians, there's a spectrum of views on the issues around, surrounding and involving masturbation. In other words, when you say, well, what does the Bible say? What's the biblical teaching? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a trickier question than you may have ever been led to believe. In a 1987 survey by Christianity Today Institute, and CT is a flagship evangelical um, magazine, 47% of pastors and 35% of Christianity Today readers reported that they masturbated at least once a month or more often. Upwards of 70% of male college students in Christian colleges who struggle with spiritual conflicts are actually referring to or facing the issue of masturbation. And if anyone, if you've ever done ministry, I did ministry for a couple of years with college students. And, and particularly college guys, and, and that, that was the number one issue. If you wanted to, to get to the heart of just uncomfortableness, <laughs> that was the issue that did it. Everybody would dance around the subject of, you know, I'm struggling with lust, my spiritual life, habitual sin. They'd do everything they could to not say, I can't stop masturbating. <laughs> because just saying that out loud was so awkward, it was so weird. They could tell you all about how they got tore up drunk the other night. They could tell you about how they had sex with their girlfriend or their boyfriend and were ashamed of it, but there was still kind of a bragging, right? Like a confession brag. Like, yeah, I used to be in a gang. I used to kill people. I used to shoot up heroin right into my eyeball and then go out and rob a bank. That's not confession. You started bragging. You started building up your testimony to make it, right? Like there's a coolness about some sins. I know coolness about, yeah, I sat in my dorm room on my laptop and looked at pornography all night and masturbated. That's not cool. That's not, that doesn't make anyone go, oh, God's grace is amazing in your life because you don't do that anymore. That's the point. Like, it's just such a, ooh, it just, it's weird. I, the lights are dim. I don't see, I can't see who's blushing or not, but probably the fact of just saying the word masturbation makes some of you uncomfortable. And it's okay. I mean, that's just our culture, but um, it's nothing new. Here's, here's one thing to think about. Nothing new. Egyptian Book of the Dead, all right? So this is an ancient text that contains the incantations and rituals that you would do on behalf of the dead or if you were facing death, if you were wanting to assure that in the afterlife you had more white marbles in your balance than black marbles. White marbles, good deeds. Black marbles, bad deeds. Weighed in the scales. And if your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds, you enjoy bliss in the afterlife with the gods. If not, you'd experience all kinds of stuff. So there was this in the ancient cultures. This is like around, you know, ancient Old Testament times. In one of the, the Book of the Dead chapters, chapter 125, um, it, it gives a list of things that you're supposed to say or promise that you haven't done to show that you're a holy and righteous person. And so among the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were crazy sexually promiscuous in terms of, or not promiscuous isn't the right word, uh, sexually debauched in terms of their behavior. 
I mean, they did all kinds of stuff and even celebrated all kinds of stuff. But, but part of the oath was, you know, I have not harmed the offering loaves of the gods. I have not taken the festival loaves of the blessed dead. So they've, they've kept their religious practices. I have not penetrated the penetrator of a penetrator. That has to do with sex and, and homosexuality, and, and it, that's just how they word it. Um, it's like an inception, like the penetrator of a penetrator of a penetrator. But what they're basically saying is, I haven't engaged in male homosexual acts. I have not masturbated. Just right there. I haven't done that. I've not reduced the measuring vessel. I've not reduced the measuring cord. In other words, I haven't cheated people. I've not encroached on fields. I've not added to the pan of the scales, my business. Like right in there, in their religious duties and in their business dealings, right in there, haven't engaged in a certain form of homosexual sex, and I haven't masturbated. That's in the Egyptian literature of the day. So the point is, the reason I'm sharing this, one, because it's kind of funny, but two is because it's not new, and it's not unknown. The, the Israelites came out of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. And, they, and, and God specifically told them, hey, all the things that the Egyptians did sexually, don't do those. In fact, let me, tell, let me run through the list of what not to do. And we have Leviticus 18 through 20. It was known. But yet the Bible never once mentions the actual act of self-stimulation to the point of orgasm, which is what masturbation is. Never mentions it. So it's not because it didn't have the vocabulary for it. Now, just keep that in mind, because again, this is not like, well, there you go. Go have fun, kids. No, not at all. The point is, when you're thinking through your sexual ethic, you have to say, now, how do I process this if the Bible doesn't specifically speak to it? Well, you're going to have to do sort of a roundabout approach, because the Bible speaks to every issue, even though it doesn't speak about every issue. So, but, but you may have to get there in a little uh, circuitous path. So one thing that, that since the ancient times, like the rabbis and the medieval Christians, they've looked at Genesis 38, and they've, they've looked at the story of Onan. And I've given it to you on page 27 of your textbook. Um, basically, you can read the story, but the, the, the verse that really uh, the, drives it home is verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, the child, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen, and that's the word seed in Hebrew, actually. We talked about that the first week. He spilled his seed on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. God, this is Genesis 38, this is in the line of the time of Israel when it was a family before it was a nation, and this is in the line of Judah. This is Jesus' family history, by the way. These are the skeletons in his family's closet. Um, the text says, oh, well, he spilled his seed on the ground, so God said that's wicked, and God struck him dead. Well, there you go. Masturbation, mortal sin. Why? Because it's spilling your seed on the ground, and God wants offspring to be produced. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So any of that is wasting of the seed, wasting of this vital fluids, and therefore God opposes it, and that's why it's wrong. And it's really wrong. It's not just a little wrong. It's like really wrong because God killed a guy for it. And to this day, uh, the, the term onan and onanism, onanism is the, t if you read the journals of uh, religion and sexuality, onanism is the historic term for masturbation. 
That's what it's called like in the 1800s and 1900s when you, you can read it in American literature and, and, and you know, journal articles and studies and everything. They'll refer to it as onanism. That's where it comes from, this chapter in Genesis about Onan. So much so, in the Code of Jewish Law, this is cited in the Journal of Religion and Health, Volume 16, Number 3, 1977, Code of Jewish Law, which is an ultra-Orthodox, or like not every, Judaism is just as wide a spectrum as Christianity. So you have the equivalent of lapsed Catholics all the way to hyper-fundamentalists and everything in between within Judaism. But in a particular conservative and fundamentalist Orthodox Judaism, there's, there's certain ways that they've interpreted law, practices that they've adopted, and in, in one section it says, it is forbidden to cause in vain the effusion of semen. That's basically it's forbidden to masturbate to the point of orgasm. And this crime is severer than any of the violations mentioned in the Torah. Those who commit fornication with their hands violate a grave prohibition, but they are also to be banned. Occasionally, as a punishment for this, children die while young. A man should be very careful to avoid hardening himself. In other words, don't even arouse yourself. Therefore, it is forbidden to sleep on one's back with his face upward. Why? Because in the night, you don't control your bodily functions. Blood flow goes wherever it wants, based on your dreams, based on just the temperature, whatever. And so you can't control your sex organs, and guys get erections at night all the time. But in this case, it was even like regulated down to, okay, so to avoid that, you can't sleep on your back, which I guess that was seen as... Uh, adding to it. It is forbidden to hold the penis while urinating. In some orthodox, like ultra-orthodox Jewish bathrooms, guys, if you go in one and you see somebody with their pants around their knees or their ankles and holding up their shirt and just aiming, (laughs) that's why. I mean, literally, that's why. From youngest age, you're taught, no, you you don't touch that, that part of you. Don't play with it. Don't touch it. Don't explore it. Don't, hands off. Well, it's nothing new. It goes all the way back, even in ancient Judaism. And in part is based on reading the story of Onan and seeing that God put him to death. Your child died while they were young? Oh, that's probably because they were touching themselves. Right there. Now, hear me. Not everybody that's Jewish believes this. In fact, the majority of Jewish people in the world and throughout history have not believed this. So don't get it twisted in that regard. But what it shows is throughout history... There's been this case. Um, Here's some fun trivia. Anybody ever eaten a graham cracker or eaten cornflakes? Reverend Sylvester Graham and Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, both, I believe both were Seventh-day Adventists, but both in the 1800s, there was the belief that the, the ailments, sickness, even insanity was caused by the loss of vital fluids meaning in particular for men, masturbation, for women, excessive sexual lubrication, all this, just the loss of those fluids. So, particularly, it was a problem seen among young boys, like early, old, old Boy Scout manuals warned against masturbating. Like in the Boy Scouts handbook, said don't do it because it could lead to excessive blood flow to the brain and you could go crazy. Um, Literally, not making that up. Well, these were beliefs that circulated, and so this was what drove the ethic for most Christians regarding masturbation is just don't do it. The Pope had already said in 1050-something, Pope Leo the, uh, I think Leo the Ninth in 1054 had said it's a mortal sin, 
Like there's venial sins and there's mortal sins in the Catholic Church and murder, adultery, those are mortal sins. Venial sins are kind of like the lesser. Masturbation is a mortal sin. The Pope had already said it. So for Catholics, it was a done deal. Why? Because you're spilling seed, you're not procreating, et cetera, et cetera. But, but this is secular, uh, or Christian culture and even secular culture. It was seen as, so here, what does this have to do with graham crackers? Well, part of what was seen as keeping men, young men in particular, from having the urge to masturbate, the urge to experience sexual longings and lust, was a whole grain diet. It was believed that a healthy and whole grain diet would help stifle the urge to sinful lusts. So, Reverend Sylvester Graham invented a very healthy whole grain snack food that young boys and children and kids would want to eat. He called it a graham cracker. And John Harvey Kellogg, doctor, invented this, this cereal, this, this whole grain healthy cereal that would contribute to uh, a lessening of the sexual urge. He called them cornflakes. So the origin, and that's, that's literally, that's true. You can, you can look this up and, and Google all you want, but this is, the, uh, this is the case of how these two things in particular came about to keep people from masturbating because they believed that it had such detrimental effects, either morally or physically, or psychologically. And some people, some of the early studies, they'd, they'd, they'd note that people in insane asylums, like in padded rooms, masturbated way more than the general society. And, and Kinsey and others came along and said, time out. <laughs> One, they're locked in a room. Two, they're insane. So what else is there to do if you're locked in a room by yourself? In other words, you don't get to see what people do in their private lives, but you can see what people do in an insane asylum. So that's not a very good correlation. It certainly isn't, doesn't show causation. But um, the, the notion was, you know, for a long time that it, it's, an, it's an issue of health and it's an issue of safety and everything. Then, aside from the Onan story, um, there's also the issue of Levitical purity. In Leviticus, and we'll look at this and then we'll take a break, in Leviticus 15, 16, it says, when a man has an omission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water, and he will be unclean until evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water, and it will be unclean till evening. When a man lies with a woman and there is an omission of semen, both must bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. This is the closest verse in the Bible to talking about the, the specific issue of masturbation. And it's found in the Levitical purity section, and what it's saying is, is anytime there's an emission of semen, anytime there's a sexual act between a husband and wife, whatever, then that is going to result in a state of ritual impurity. And in terms of Leviticus, what it meant was you had to wait, you had to do a thing of purification, in this case, bathe, with, wash with water, with water, before you could enter into God's assembly. You were just considered unclean. And that's not a moral thing. It wasn't like you're a sinner. Because any time a man and a woman had sex, there was an emission of semen. That's part of sex. So any time a man and a woman had sex, they were ritually unclean until evening. In other words, you couldn't, there had to be this sense. And it's part of this intricate system where God was putting in place all of these things, all of these ways to show Israel the difference between what is common and what is holy. And common didn't always equal bad, it equaled common unclean. Holy was in a separate realm. 
Not necessarily better. This had to do with like the kind of clothes you wore, and, and if, you, if you touched a dead body, a corpse. Well, you had to do that if you are burying your family member. Um, all of these things. So you could do stuff that would make you ritually unclean that there was nothing morally wrong with in Leviticus. And the thing with Onan, so we're, we're going to get around to actual issue, but this is, this is an example of how you have to work out the sexual ethic. I haven't even mentioned where we come down on the issue yet. But in getting there, you have to work through these things, and you have to think about these things. In the Levitical purity, well, it's talking about purity and holiness in this section. When you study Leviticus, and you read about the purity laws, and you read about being unclean and what that means and what it doesn't mean, you see that it's clean and unclean in the Old Testament wasn't a sin issue. It was a holiness, a, a sanctification issue in terms of actually physically being pure or being common. Well, Onan, what about that one? That's pretty cut and dry. God killed him because he spilled his seed. No. The Onan story, if you read it, so Judah, look at verse uh, 1. At the time, Judah left his brothers, went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her, he lay with her. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son. So Judah's first son. So Judah is one of Jacob's sons, one of Israel's sons, the head of the tribe of Judah. This is Jesus' great, 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 all the way back granddad. He had a son, firstborn son named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Now, verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. So Judah, he's got his son. Judah's the head of the tribe. He's the head of the family. His firstborn son, the one who's going to carry on his family name, is Ur. So he finds a wife for Ur named Tamar. They get married. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. Doesn't say why, but he was really bad. So the Lord put him to death. Something in Ur was so evil that God literally killed him. And just the fact that that happens, and that that happens in the New Testament too with Ananias and Sapphira, so it's not just an Old Testament thing. But it was like, this is especially bad, and it's an especially important moment in history. And so God put him to death. So uh, Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. This is weird. We don't have this. This is called leveret marriage. In the culture of the ancient Near East, it was common that if you did not have children or could not have children, that was the utmost important thing. That was, that was, you had to have children to pass on your inheritance, your, your tribal identity, your family name, all of it. Had to have a child. So if there was a couple and the husband died before they had children, then the wife, part of being a wife was you, you were granted the right to have children. And, and if you were if, if of the firstborn, if you were married to the firstborn son, that meant that you were going to inherit everything or, or a double portion at least. You were going to get the biggest inheritance if you were the firstborn. So the wife of the firstborn dies, no children. It was, a, it was a custom, it was a law in ancient Near East society. There had to be someone to carry on that lineage. So it was the duty of the brother. There's an argument about whether you, it would apply if he was married or not. Some say yes, some say no. But and typically it would be an unmarried brother to take the wife, the widow, and to actually have a child through her or or produce a child through, and that child would not be the son of the brother, but would be considered the full legally binding uh, child, heir of the dead brother. That makes sense? 
very convoluted and it's really weird for us. But again, totally different cultures, time, setting, everything. So here's the situation. Ur, firstborn, set to inherit everything when Judah dies. God puts him to death. He's married, God puts him to death. So now Tamar deserves, according to the rule and the ritual of the day and the, and the law of the day, she deserves an heir that will carry on the family name and receive the, 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 all of the uh, inheritance. So he tells Onan, Judah tells his other son, do the duty of a leveret, do the duty of a brother-in-law, produce an offspring for your dead brother so that the implied, or the, it's not even implied, it's just what's going to happen is, so that that child, when it grows up, will get the double portion. However, Onan knows if he doesn't produce a child, that double portion and his portion goes to him. And Tamar, she's out of luck. She's just another widow. God really doesn't like when people abuse the widow and the orphan. And in this instance, Onan was doing the deed. Okay, I'll go have sex with her. And at the moment of ejaculation, which I know you just blushed when I said that, but at that moment, he pulled out, spilled his seed on the ground, early birth control, so that he would not impregnate her, so that she could not have the child, so that the family name couldn't carry on through her, and she would not be protected in her old age. And Onan would get all of the inheritance, and he would be the firstborn, and he would be the one through whom the uh, lineage was passed on. What he did was wicked in the eyes of God, and so God put him to death. That what he did has almost nothing to do with the spilling of the seed. It has to do with the defrauding uh, of a widow and, and the, uh, you know, leaving her to a life of destitution. So all of that to say, that's the background when we're looking at that passage. When it comes to what does the Bible say about masturbation, the answer is nothing. Well, okay, so what do we think about it? Well, we need to think carefully. We need to look through. We know what the Bible says about lust. We know what the Bible says about inward desires to have, to uh, objectify, to fantasize in a way that's not godly, in a way that's not honoring to the Lord, to, to desire to take advantage or to have what we can't have. We know those things. We know that humans are prone to selfishness, and we're prone to addiction, and we're prone to an inward focus of ourselves. So all of those things have to be factored in when it comes to issues of lust, and in particular issues of masturbation. And we have to look at it, and we have to realize that, that Christians have taken different views on it. Some have said, what they've all agreed on, this is to the, the bottom line, what they've all agreed on is, is the actual act itself of stimulating yourself to orgasm to the point of ejaculation or for a woman to the point of orgasm, that in and of itself, that action, which there is a word for in the ancient world and there was a term and they were known, that action is not wrong in and of itself. However, actions don't happen free of thoughts. And it's what's going on upstairs that determines what's going on downstairs is pleasing to God or not. And this is where Christians then offer advice that could be different depending on who you talk to. And so they'll talk about, like Talbot's written a blog post a while back called The Theology of Masturbation, which I'm sure probably got a lot of traffic in, just for the title alone. And it's a, it's a good post. You should go read it on his blog, talbotdavis.blogspot.com. So anyway, 
you can Google it. He's accessible online. But it was it was about uh, the the issue of masturbation, and and it talks about look, here's here's where it ge- gets into wrongness, because it becomes about you focusing inward, you focusing on yourself, my needs, my pleasures, my desires. Sex no longer has to do with the relational. It doesn't have to do with the uh, relating to another human being. It doesn't have to do with the giving. It doesn't have to do with an honoring and serving another person. It's all about me. It becomes addictive, and pastorally, it can keep people in bondage. Uh, Absolutely true. Um, uh, Other Christians, though, they've noted, for some Christians, for instance, uh, servicemen that are away from their wives for a year at a time and are faced with temptation and sexual temptation all around in terms of brothels or in terms of just you know pornography or in terms of illicit affairs now that the military is uh, intergendered and everything. Like, they're surrounded by that. And so for them, that might be a much more healthy way to relieve their sexual tension, their sexual desires, than to burn with lust or than to give in to another form of it. Christian sex therapists, yes, that's a thing. They deal with couples a lot who have sexual dysfunctions and sexual abuse history in their relationship. And so the actual act of sex is, is, is distorted because of either the abuse or, or something psychological that a person's experienced. And so they use and they've encouraged participatory masturbation with each other, uh, you know, stimulating yourself with your partner there, telling them this is what feels good, this is how I respond to pleasure, this is how I don't respond to pleasure, all of that kind of stuff. And so they've used that in the realm of sexual counseling as a valid option. Uh, James Dobson talks about, you know, kids growing up, adolescents, they're growing up, they're exploring their bodies, they're realizing, wow, I didn't have hair there before, now it's there, my voice is deeper. You know, for girls, what are these things growing on my chest? Like all of these changes that are happening, and, and they've talked about how part of that is this high, this, this high percentage of, of young people growing up that engage in masturbation as part of the exploratory understanding of their sexuality. And what and Dobson, of all people, he is very conservative. He would say, look, here's what you look for. Things that are addictive, things that are abusive, if it's coupled with pornography use, if it's coupled with thinking that is objectifying, if it, all of that, then, yeah, that, that could very well be something that could get into easily into sexual immorality. However... If kids are coming from a very, very sexually repressed culture, a Catholic upbringing, or a fundamentalist hardcore upbringing, or just a sexually repressed secular upbringing, and they've just been taught that sex is bad, shame, 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 all this, then one act of masturbation can just send them into despair, like, I'm an awful person, I'm a rotten person, I'm I'm so disgusting, I'm so filthy. And the cycle becomes a cycle of temptation, giving in, masturbation, and then a pit of condemnation afterwards. And it's just this downward spiral for people. And so... Somewhere in all of that, what we as Christians have to think through is, is the ethic behind it all, is the underlying foundation. What does God want? What does he think about this? What does it look like in different contexts, different people? How does this relate to my kids who are asking me about this issue? How does this reflect in my mind when I was growing up, what I was taught about it? Um, all of that is going to lead to different conclusions among Christians, particularly on this issue. And that's okay. I mean, this, this is, you have major doctrinal foundational issues, and then you have secondary issues where there can be disagreement, even passionate disagreement. And that's okay, as long as we remember there's primary and then there's secondary and then there's tertiary issues that are even less of importance when there can even be more um, 
fellowship among disagreement. So, so on this issue of, of lust and masturbation and sexual fantasy, um, here's a quote by Collins. It's, it's the, the first quote at the bottom of page 27. I promise you a break, so we'll do it right after this. Uh, um, this is from Christian Counseling uh, textbook. And, and this, this, I think, holds the balance very well. It says, when we consider the range of sexual behavior that's discussed in Scripture, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, prostitution, rape, transsexuality, incest, it's difficult to think that masturbation is left out by accident. Clearly, masturbation does not seem to be one of God's great concerns. His word says more about the mistreatment of animals. We must be careful not to harshly condemn something that the Bible does not condemn. Any, now, any person who teaches or writes about masturbation is likely to be criticized. And that's normal. That's okay. In the, here's the key. In the absence of clear biblical guidance on this issue, we're left with a variety of conflicting opinions, often given by sincere, compassionate counselors whose views we should understand and respect. Surely masturbation is a, surely masturbation is a sin when it's accompanied by a lusting for sexual relationships that God forbids, when it masters us, there's a sermon wordplay for you, or when it hinders one's relationship with God. Open communication about masturbation helps to diffuse its destructive impact. And for most people, it will be replaced in time by a more fulfilling sexuality within marriage. But not for all people. For most people, not for all people. What Collins is, is getting at, and in his section he deals with it, and Richard Foster in Money, Sex, and Power, these are, these are given in the resources recommended at the front of your book. They all, they, they, all of them write on this topic, and they, they both, the conclusions that they come to are, when it comes to the issue of masturbation, there are going to be good reasons to not do it. But there are also no clear biblical teaching that says, thou shalt not. So in light of that, what we have to do is, is hold that tension and say, look, the issue is the lust side of it, not the masturbation side of it, primarily. That could come into play, but, but the, the foundational issue is what's going on up here? That will say a lot more about the sinfulness of the act than the actual physical act itself on this issue. Now, when it comes to the other types of sexual immorality, which we're about to look at after this break, the Bible does have stuff to say about it, and it does speak specifically to it. But the importance of uh, the approach to it is we want to avoid both extremes. We want to avoid the extreme of legalism or asceticism, which is the early church uh, practice of just denying the self, denying every pleasure. If something feels good, don't do it because that's keeping you from being holy. We want to avoid that extreme, but we also want to avoid the extreme that many Christians, particularly our denomination as Methodists, have fallen into, which is the opposite, which is libertinism. Do whatever feels good. It's, if it, it's just between you and the partner, and God's okay with it. It's not a big deal. Agree to disagree. Get, do whatever feels right. Whatever kind of love you want to express, we'll back that because it's holy and it's good and, it's, and we want to affirm and we want to welcome. And we, That's so not what Jesus taught, as we're going to see in just a minute. That is not at all what Jesus taught. So we got to hold that balance. How do you hold that balance? That's what you have to figure out as you develop your Christian sexual ethic. The quote by Deb Hirsch nails it, though. She says, when we are fearful... As disciples or as a church, we begin thinking primarily about what we want to prevent 
and avoid rather than what we want to encourage and develop. In other words, we end up focusing on the wrong things. So what should guide a Christian sexual ethic is not, here's what you don't do. It should be, here's what we should be doing. And this issue or that issue or this may fall short of that in a number of different ways. So let's compare it to what we should be doing in order to see why we shouldn't be doing that. It's a completely top-down approach, and it's why we've structured this course the way we have, and we started with two weeks of what we should do and what the celebration of sexuality is rather than what we shouldn't. Okay, quick break, two-minute break. Like, this is a bathroom break only because we've got to get through one more section tonight. So bathroom break, come right back. I'm not even going to leave. Stretch, and we'll get started in just a minute. Sixty seconds, and then we're starting. Fifteen seconds. <clears throat> All right. Let's get started again because we only have about 15 more minutes. We're going to step into the next section of the course, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll conclude this next week. <clears throat> We're going to move into, this will be starting on page, lost my page numbers, I think 34, 30, my book is 34 and yours is, I don't know, there may be some formatting differences, but um, we're going to talk about Egypt, Canaan, Corinth, and Rome, holy sex in a pagan culture. Now, why these, these names in particular? Well, Egypt is where Israel was in bondage, where they came out of. Canaan, the land that they went to, who they lived among, both of them were incredibly sexually depraved cultures. Corinth, Rome, Two of the major cities in the New Testament period in the Roman Empire, both incredibly 
sexually depraved cultures. So in both Testaments, God's people have been God's people in the midst of highly hypersexual, incredibly immoral cultures. This, this should be foundational for us in terms of our sexual ethic. God's people have never found themselves in a bubble or in a, in a setting of sexual purity in the world around them. God's people have always been aliens and exiles in a foreign land when it comes to their sexual ethic, always. So it shouldn't be any surprise when we experience that in our culture today as well. And we do. Christians have always been called to be in but not of the world. In but not of the world. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and it's something that should guide our ethic at the foundational level. What we can't expect realistically to do is to do what the Essenes did. Now, the Essenes were a group of Jewish believers who were waiting for the Messiah, who deprived themselves of what they saw as a debauched culture, which is the temple in Jerusalem, because they saw it as compromised with Rome, ungodly. So what the Essenes did was they went out into the Judean desert. They went out near the Dead Sea, which is like the worst conditions you'd want to try to live in called the Dead Sea for a reason. They went out there. They established their own community at this place called Qumran. They had their own scriptural documents that were found in the 1940s, and we found them. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what we learned from those scrolls is all about this community, and they paralleled Jesus' followers. In fact, John the Baptist was almost definitely associated with or in fellowship with the Essenes, being a desert preacher in that area, like in their neighborhood. At the same time, so you had the Essenes. What they said was withdraw from society, withdraw from culture, come out of Babylon, so to speak, go into the desert, practice purity, holiness, Daily ritual bathing, they had mikvoth, which were baptismal daily bathing. This is where why John the Baptist was baptizing people, because it was seen as a way of visually showing repentance and cleansing from sin. They did it daily, and wait for the Messiah to appear and God to destroy the evildoers. That was their method. At the same time, Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts doing stuff totally different. He goes to parties. He goes to banquets. He lets women talk to him alone. He lets one woman wash his feet with her hair and her tears. He does all of this stuff that looked, you could not be more opposite than the Essenes. And that makes sense why when John the Baptist saw him and John the Baptist got put in jail and John actually sent word to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or should we be waiting for somebody else? It even tested John's faith. And Jesus called John the greatest man who's ever been born a woman. So Jesus, his behavior was scandalous and shocking in how he acted within a culture that wasn't even remotely as bad as it could have been if it had been outside of Judea and Galilee. Two different approaches. Jesus, the Essenes told their followers, separate, 
get by yourself, holy huddle, group around each other, wait for God to, you know, destroy, judge, redeem, whatever. Jesus' approach, exact opposite. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey my commandments, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you even to the end of the age. One was a call to escape the world and, the, and the, what was seen as the debauched culture. The other was a call to go into that culture. However, Jesus also said, don't go into that culture. Let me phrase it this way. Go into that culture to change it. That's what he meant by his uh, parable or his imagery of being salt and light. Salt goes into the meat and it seasons it. It preserves it. It upholds it. It, it, make, it brings out the taste of what it should be. It keeps it from decaying, implying that meat on its own without salt is just decaying, which it does. So Jesus is going to be salt. Light shines into darkness and expels the darkness. It brings light. It enlightens. That's what that word actually means. So be light into this dark culture. And all throughout John's gospel, there's this play on light and darkness, the blind versus the seeing, and, and there's, there's this whole theme that John's working with in his gospel of Jesus telling it. But it's basically his followers went into all the world. We're here today, another continent, another language, another culture talking about this because Jesus' followers didn't do what the Essenes did. The Essenes were almost completely unknown for almost 2,000 years. All we know about them is what we've dug up out of a, a, a cave with some papyrus fragments. That's what happens with that approach. What happens with Jesus' approach is the worldwide gospel. So our sexual ethic should focus, in, in at least foundationally, should be a sexual ethic of salt and light, not fleeing to the desert and keeping yourself clean. Right? Now, there may be a time Jesus withdrew to the desert. In fact, he started his ministry by spending 40 days in the desert. There may be time when you go to the desert. But your ultimate mission, those times, should always be for the purpose of rejuvenating, recharging, refreshing, empowering you to go back into the darkness and the decay. Right? Two completely different ways of looking at what we're called to be when it comes to sexual ethic. Be in, but not of. In the Old Testament, Israel came out of Egypt. And in Leviticus chapter 18, this is the holiness code. I've given you the beginning of it and the end of it. 18, verse 1, uh, and then all the way down to uh, 18, 24, and then the end of it, chapter 20, verse 22. This is from this section. The whole chapter is a lot longer and it goes into detail. Please read it on your own. But this is what God says He's brought Israel out of Egypt. Camped around Mount Sinai, given them the law, given them Torah, told them, I'm going to create you as my people, and now you're going to go into the midst of darkness. You're going to go into the promised land. You're going to go into this culture that I'm sending you, and you are going to be my instrument of purging and cleansing it. And this is how he tells them. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. That's what he tells his people. Then it goes on to describe a whole list of ways 
that you can sexually misbehave. Everything from incest to bestiality, all of it. And God's just saying, you will not do this. You shall not do this. You shall not do this. Why? Because it's what the Egyptians and it's what the Canaanites are already doing. And you're going to be different. You're going to show the world, you're going to begin to show the world what a sexually faithful people look like. Now, it won't be perfect because even within the law, God allows for things like divorce, for leveret marriage, even, doesn't, even allows for the time that there will be polygamy because those were all going on. And so God doesn't immediately jump from uh, pure darkness to pure light with no in-between. God is doing in Israel a phase of shining light into the world that will hearken back to the creation intent. We talked about this two weeks ago. And will point forward to the new kingdom when God comes and, and rules on the earth. So the, his people are going to live in that in-between time. So that's why there will be things. The law, as he gives, is not perfect, but it's a starting point. And it's a radical break with the sexual norms of both Egyptian and Canaanite culture. That's the main point. Verse 24, he says, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, after listing them all, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you, the Canaanites, became defiled. Even the land was defiled so that I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, and so he talked about sec, the, the sexual depravity of the Canaanites was so bad, and it was all tied up with idolatry and child sacrifice. and all, I mean, it was just a mess. It had gotten to a point for 400 years where God let it go. He let it go. He let it go. And finally, it reached its full measure, and he said, enough. And the land, he describes it as the, the land vomiting out the inhabitants. Their practices had made the land sick, and so it it's going to vomit them out. And this is all metaphorically describing what he's doing by bringing Israel into the land and, and to, to drive out the Canaanites. That's the instrument that God uses to judge. Verse 26, you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. In other words, everyone who claims to be part of the people of God must not do these things that he's just listed. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Israel did do all those things, by the way, and the land did vomit them out just like it did the nations before them. Verse 29, everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. Do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. This is at the end of the Holiness Code, chapter 20, verse 22. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you, because they did all these things. I abhorred them. So this is strong language of God saying, you're going to be different. You are not going to be what these nations are. And I am actually judging these nations in part because they not only did these things, they celebrate these things. They lift these things up as something that, of course, you should do culturally. This is all what's going on in the background. Now, 
Paul will pick up on this, as we'll see next week. Paul will pick up on this when he speaks to sexual immorality in the church in 1 Corinthians. He'll actually use the comparison of cutting off from the people the person engaged in the particular sexual immorality that he's talking about. And he'll point to this paradigm in the Old Testament, not because the Old Testament is ongoing law that Christians have to keep. It's not. But because it reveals the principle that should govern the way God's people live in the kingdom age under the new covenant. So just as all who claim to be part of Israel under the old covenant submitted themselves to a sexual ethic that was different than the culture from which they came, so in the new covenant, all who claim to be God's people, which are believers in Jesus, Jew and Gentile together, submit themselves to a sexual ethic that is different from the cultures from which we come. So therefore, when it comes to issues of church sexual ethics, they're going to be very different than when it comes to issues of a society's sexual ethic. How I look at sexual immorality within the church is going to be different than how I look at sexual immorality within the pagan culture. And Paul will, will flesh that out in, in very stark terms, and he'll say, who am I to judge those outside the church? God's going to judge them. I judge those inside the church. And he uses Levitical, Torah, holiness imagery to talk about that, of removing. The, the, the case of church discipline has to do, it's bound up with sexual immorality. Now, it's not the only thing that he says should invoke church discipline, but it's certainly not an unimportant thing. What two consenting adults do in their own bedroom, if they're not Christians, may not be any of my business. But what they do, if they are and claim to be Christians, inherently is my business because that is my body. Because I am part of Jesus' body, and we are united as one people. So corporate holiness exists within the church. That's why what I do sexually matters to you guys, and vice versa. Very different from a modern North American individualistic society that we live in. Very different. And, and the part of me that leans libertarian in politics is like, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> I think it should just be everyone for themselves and just leave me alone. I'll leave you alone and we'll be fine. Well, that may work in the realm of politics. Actually, I'd say it works pretty well if we just try it. But that's another topic. That may work in the realm of politics. But in the realm of ethics and in, in the church, no place for that. Because when we enter into the kingdom of God, we enter into a people who have been called to be different and to reflect the sexual ethic of the creator God who made us male and female, who put us into the garden, who give us this relationship of joy, who celebrates sexual intimacy and, and, and exalts in it through the song of songs. That's the ethic. That's the, the God whose ethic we follow. No matter how loud the culture shouts at us, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it will shout it. The question is, will we shout back and try to win a culture war? Or will we do what in the New Testament, will we be salt and light and transform and remain faithful? 
And sometimes those lines between the two of those may be a little blurred. But the bottom line is God calls us to be holy. We're out of time this week. Next week, come back, because we're going to look at all kinds of stuff like Egyptian royal adultery and divine bestiality. Yikes. Ancient Near East fertility religion, Baal, Asherah, Moloch, or sometimes called Milcom. We're going to talk about what the high places are, what the Kedashim, the holy ones, what they were. I'll give you a hint. It has to do with prostitution in church. Um, we're going to get into what the New Testament says about all of this because we're living in the New Testament. So there's your tease for next week. But the main point, our sexual ethic in the world, not of the world, to see how that plays out in issues of today, sanctity of marriage, LGBT rights, compassion, civil rights of sexual minorities, transsexuality, intergender bathrooms, all of these things that our culture is dealing with right now are nothing new. And so what we want to do is give you the foundation to go out of these doors and into your community, into your schools, into your workplace, into your offices, into your places of government, transformationally holding to a different ethic and being able to tell people when they ask, because they'll ask, why you believe that and why you hold to it and not have you say, because the Bible says so. That is not a satisfactory answer for this class. It should be a thoughtful Christian ethic. That's what this course is about, developing a thoughtful Christian ethic. It says it right on the front of your booklet. So, God, thank you for tonight that we can come together, that we can talk about things that make us uncomfortable, we can talk about things that make us blush, that we can uh, boldly and unapologetically talk about your word, our place in society, and what you desire for us as sexual beings created in your image whom you delight in and who you want to see experience true, total intimacy, first with you and with each other. So Lord, we thank you for this time. Pray a blessing over everyone here. Please bring them back safely next week. Be with those who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to all be in the world, but not of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, guys.